Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. Oh, boy, when you're an environmentalist, uh, when you're a conservationist in Florida, Craig, there's a lot of bad news. Much of today's episode is going to be spent talking about red tide and cyanobacteria. We've got uh, a new city being built in Panther Habitat in Collier County. But you, intrepid journalist, you found good news. (laughs) I did. In the most unlikely of place in your latest Florida (laughs) Phoenix column, you've got Good news for conservationists coming out of the Florida legislature. I know. And I, and I compared it to, you know, a miracle akin to the devil popping into church <laughs> on Easter Sunday and dropping off a thousand dollar bill in the offering plate. Um, uh, the legislature, which has consistently year after year resisted spending a lot of money on buying conservation land, uh, has suddenly discovered that it likes wildlife corridors, specifically the Florida Wildlife Corridor Expedition that was run by Carlton Ward Jr., a nature photographer and uh, Joe Guthrie, a bear biologist, they put together this program of taking people on trips uh, up along the state, up along the spine of the state and, and some other places to show off not only our natural resources, mm-hmm. but also how they're connected, that we have islands of preservation, you know, state parks, state forests, mm-hmm. national wildlife refuges. But there are lands in between that can link them for wide ranging animals like panthers yeah. and bears. Undeveloped and, land. Undeveloped land. That's right. Some of it's cattle ranches. Some of it are, you know, like county parks and things like that. Mm-hmm. Some of it are, are, are other things. And, and it's just undeveloped. Uh, and that if there, if there's a way to use say conservation easements or something like that to secure the future of that property, so it doesn't become developed yeah. and that can continue to provide that linkage among those things. And the legislature went, Hey, that's a good idea. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and voted to spend a whole big chunk of money from the American Rescue Plan, which is supposed to provide COVID relief uh, for economic relief from, from the pandemic, they said, well, let's devote 300 million of that to these wildlife corridors, and then we'll, we'll double our usual 50 million for, for the Florida Forever land buying program, yeah. double that to 100 million. So it's, it's just quite astounding to mm-hmm. see that happen. But, you know, we talked whatever, a little bit. Whatever about, works, man. Yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> you know, we talked a little bit about the Florida Wildlife Corridor in our episode on ranching, but there is a remarkable opportunity still, still in 2021, despite Disney World and development and the villages and subdivisions and strip malls going everywhere. There is still a real opportunity to link Florida Bay to the Okefenokee Swamp with. Yep undeveloped land that would allow, yes, the big uh, mammals like the panthers and the bears to roam, but also Mm -hmm. the birds and the butterflies and the small mammals and and everything else. And it is through uh, this huge patchwork of private land, public land, state land, federal land. But you talk about the initial vision for that project, which didn't, this is not something that, you know, someone dreamed up in the horse and buggy day. Uh, This came along recently. And when you heard it for the first time, you uh, weren't uh, so convinced. I was not sold. Well, because (laughs) and we'll talk to Carlton in a future episode. He's scheduled to be on here Uh, that he, he, he had been talking to Joe Guthrie and they had talked to some landscape ecologists about this. And they said, well, uh, this is a great idea, but how do we get people on board for it? And so Carlton and Joe's idea was, we'll actually take the trip and we'll show people what's at stake. Mm-hmm. We'll produce this documentary about it and they'll and all these photos, 
and we'll make them realize this is worth saving. And that's what that's what they were going to do. And this was like eight, nine years ago. And I was thinking, yeah, right. Good luck with that. <laughs> but, they, you know, apparently they got the attention of some legislators and they, yeah. they, they got on board. So yeah. this is three hundred million dollars coming from the federal government as part of the uh, Biden recovery plan. It could have been spent anywhere. And, that you know, that's why yeah. it's it's a real success for uh, environmentalists and, and conservationists because it could as easily have been spent on building marketing dollars or yeah. you know yeah hey let's let's build those new toll roads <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly yeah you know at, <laughs> at the same time the the legislature continues to uh, habitually underfund the uh, Florida Forever program which is supposed to buy these conservation properties annually uh, a, a huge glut of money all at once is is welcome. And yeah. most of that money is, I won't say spoken for, but the people who are in charge of the, the Florida Wildlife Corridor, they, they know the parcels of land they want to go after. Well, and, and I mean, the, the actual buying will be done by the Florida Department of Environmental Protection and the, and the governor and cabinet. They'll mm-hmm. approve what gets purchased. The irony to me, though, and I pointed this out in the column, is close to 80% of the land in the Florida Wildlife Corridor is land that was already on the Florida Forever buying list. So they could have been buying this stuff all along, but the but the legislature has been underfunding the program for years, so they couldn't. And so, you know, every year you postpone buying this land, guess what happens to the price? It goes yeah. up. Yeah. So, so they could have gotten a much better bang for the buck if they'd been financing the program the way they should have all along. Mm-hmm. But Better late than never, man. You know, <laughs> better late than never. Yeah, absolutely. We will move from that to an interesting story you have in the latest uh, edition of Flamingo Magazine. You can check that out online. Just Google Flamingo Magazine, a great statewide magazine covering all sorts of cultural, environmental, uh, food and History, dining yeah. stuff all across yeah. Florida. This is about the uh, coral research uh, you've been reporting on lately. The only uh, coral reef in the continental United States is off the coast of Florida, the Great Florida Coral Reef. And it's which coast? You know, it's been, we're, we're talking the East Coast, right? Yes, yes. Okay. And it's been buffeted by, you know, climate change and other problems. Uh, uh, rising temperature in the ocean is causing coral bleaching. Well, now they're facing this this very strange and mysterious uh, uh, bacterial disease that is basically sweeping through there like a forest fire. And they discovered it in 2014. And by 2018, they realized if we don't act, if we don't do something desperate, we're going to lose the whole coral reef. Mm-hmm. So uh, the state and the federal government partnered together at, with some uh, uh, Aquaria, SeaWorld, Disney World, et cetera, to go out and actually harvest some of the living coral that had not been affected by the disease and bring them on shore and put them in different facilities in, in tanks and try and cultivate them and grow them and even even produce offspring from them that someday they can eventually plant back out there once they figured out how to stop this disease. So it's like a it's like a a, a, a land based Noah's Ark for these. Mm. And I I got to go see the the largest uh, facility containing these things, and they're actually calling it the Florida Coral Reef Rescue uh, Operation. It's in this nondescript office park in Orlando, off International Drive, behind a couple of uh, car dealerships. And you go in this door that has no markings on it other than the, other than the, the number. And inside are these huge tanks full of corals. And um, they're under this kind of eerie blue light. Uh, and the people in there, are, you know, they're feeding them in the morning with turkey basters and watching them grow, keeping careful track of them. So they're, they're, they're getting educated on, on the lives of the corals. They're learning an awful lot about the corals, even as they're trying to, trying to save them. 
And it's a sign of how desperate this, this effort is that Disney World and SeaWorld, which are competitors and normally don't even talk to each other, they're working together on this project. You can read more about it at Flamingo Magazine. Google Flamingo Magazine. Take you right there. That brings us to our guest this week, Cindy Heil, director of the Red Tide Institute at Mount Marine. She is a senior research scientist at the Sarasota-based facility. Of course, Craig, red tide, blue-green algae, those are such buzzwords here around this state. I'm looking forward to talking to Cindy and getting a, a, a better... It's a hot topic right now because oh, yeah. we're dealing with both right now in Florida. Yeah. Well, it's... Let's talk to Cindy. Cindy, let me start off by asking you sort of a personal question here, which is how did you get interested in investigating harmful algae blooms, which are certainly a hot topic right now in Florida? Believe it or not, I grew up the coast of Maine where they had their first red tide in 1972, a different organism, different toxins. I happened to be dating a clammer at the time and it put a dent in my social life. Blew down from Canada. It established itself and it's bloomed ever since. It, it put out cysts, resting stages, but they closed the uh, shell fishing for the entire state that year. So we had no money. <laughs> I was wow. like, what is this red tide and why is it affecting my social life? I wanted to be a vet at the time and I went to school pre-vet at Purdue. And I was fortunate enough, though, to get into a master's program here at USF in St. Pete. I won't say when, but it was, we're studying red tide, late 80s, and a very fortunate advisor, and it was just a fascinating topic. Totally different type of red tide, but the science was wide open. Basically, we knew next to nothing about red tide at the time, so it was really fascinating to start, and that was sort of pre the period where there was a lot more focus on red tide, which happened uh, probably in the early 90s when people started to recognize that uh, we're seeing a global issue here. And it's uh, increasing and we need to do something about it. So at the time, it was kind of a backwater science that was of local interest. But globally, people were going, oh, we don't get them here, so it's not important. That's sort of my roundabout story into Red Tide. So let's say I'm, I'm like Chad. I'm not from Florida. I come here and suddenly I'm, you know, smelling this awful stuff. What are the basics that every Floridian should know about, about Red Tide? Well, Florida has always had Red Tides. First of all, when you say Red Tide... We say Florida red tide because that refers to it here. Red tide is kind of a global term. If you say red tide in Maine, it's a different species, different toxin. No fish kills, but if you eat a bad clam, it'll kill you. It's important you designate where you're, you're talking about the red tide. Here in Florida, uh, we've always had them. They're a natural feature of the system. Uh, they cause significant uh, environmental impacts, everything from fish kills to marine mortality deaths. There are human impacts, human health. The greatest is respiratory irritation, but we can also have shellfish, neurotoxic shellfish poisoning. And lately, we've gotten a better handle on the economics. They're a huge economic hit whenever we get a red tide to the state. But they are a fairly predictable phenomena in Southwest Florida. The majority start in the fall. The length is variable. They vary quite significantly in duration and intensity. And luckily, so far, the really intense ones like we had in 18 usually only happen about once every decade or so. So it, while it's a natural feature, there are a lot of questions people have about them. And I always like to acknowledge that to somebody moving to Florida, their first red tide is their worst red tide, which is understandable. So it may not be necessarily the worst, but it is their worst. And that's something you try to take into consideration when you're talking about red tide to people. What is it? It is a little single-celled plant, uh, a type of phytoplankton, which are the base of the food web in the oceans. 
Uh, it's a type of dinoflagellate. It's a little bizarre plant because even though it's smaller than the head of a pin, it swims. It has flagella. Mm-hmm. It photosynthesizes. We know it can consume other things. And really, it wouldn't be an issue if it wasn't toxic. And that's where it becomes a problem because it is always toxic. Yeah, if it was normally present with no toxins, it would be the base of the food chain, essentially. But those toxins complicate life. And kill manatees and so forth. Uh-huh, and yeah. kill manatees and move fish and actually persist in food webs, we're finding out. They also aerosolize. So they, What does that mean? Uh, it means largely when the cells are in the surf near shore uh, and there's turbulence mixing, mm. uh, you get sea spray. And the nature of toxins is um, the cells break up, but the toxins are contained in the the, uh, aerosols, the droplets that you're inhaling, the sea spray. So if we have a bloom at a beach and the winds are uh, onshore, then you can actually be inhaling um, very small concentrations of brevitoxins. Latest research, uh, Rich Pierce here at Mode has really found them 10 miles inland. He's measured them. Oh, my word. If If we get winds, yes, they can affect quite a large amount of people. What gives it its toxicity? Ah, that's a $64,000 question. The presence of these brevitoxins that the cells always have, which are long chain polyethers, this is a science word, but they're essentially 13 carbon rings struck together. And if you look at the structure, you're like, what the heck are those for? We don't know why the cells are toxic. There are theories it can be everything from it's just a byproduct of the cell metabolism. It's not toxic to the cells. So they don't seem to derive any benefit physiologically, but it may be a nutrient acquisition strategy by killing the fish. Fish are actually the number one nutrient source for red tides, dead fish. So they uh-huh. it may be fish farming. That's the goal. Or it may simply be the equivalent of a forest fire. It's cleaning out the, the, the marine system every now and then. We don't know. It may keep it from being grazed. Things don't like to eat it, fish, small fish and zooplankton, because it's toxic. So we don't know why there's there's probably half a dozen theories floating around as to why they're toxic. What what benefit does it serve the cell? It obviously serves some benefit. What's its role in the ecosystem? Um, Yeah, that is a good question. That gets back to the whole forest fire theory, possibly. It may be cleaning out the system, much as a forest fire does in a forest. Um, We know it puts a lot of carbon into the system base of the food chain, these blooms are incredibly productive. And the uh, eastern Gulf of Mexico is very productive for fisheries. And one of the questions people have is why, because you move offshore, those waters are fairly clear. There's not a, a lot of phytoplankton. When we get a bloom, there's a lot of phytoplankton, even if it happens to be toxic. So that carbon is moving through the food chain too. So indirectly, these blooms may be supporting higher productivity, even though directly they're not, they're causing fish kills. One of the things we have noticed is um, after these blooms, we get pretty bad fisheries year, but they're very good years for things like shrimp and crab. Um, And that may be because they're detritivores. They eat the detritus, which is, um, uh, what's a good word for detritus? Uh, Flotsam and gypsum. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, flotsam and gypsum. I was going to say garbage, but that's the wrong word. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, the leftover organic matter. There's a lot of that after a red tide. So. It's not always negative. There's some positive things. So they can feed on the dead fish and not. Uh, they feed on nutrients from the dead fish. So as uh. the fish are decaying, um, <laughs> they put out a lot of uh, ammonia, nitrate, nitrogen, and phosphorus. And we've measured that. And actually, in an active fish kill, there is a huge amount of nutrients that come into the system from those decaying fish. 
Tritivore. You're, you're throwing a lot of good uh, new Scrabble <laughs> words out here for us on, on this episode. Goodness, I hope people are listening along with a, a scientific dictionary. You you know, we we're throwing all these questions out at you. Oh, that's a good question. Not really sure. You know, you're a leading researcher in this field and don't have all the answers, and that's okay. What has made study of, of red tide so difficult or uh, so slow in, in evolving? Well, prior to this recognition that it was a global problem and a U.S. problem, there wasn't a lot of federal funding for research. It was sort of a backwater in terms of science. They were more interested in the bigger questions about oceanography. Now there's a lot more funding that's driving some of the research. So that's a little bit easier in terms of state and federal funding. Red tides, any type of harmful algal bloom and when I was at Fish and Wildlife with the Red Tide Group there, we monitored over 75 species of harmful algae in state waters. So Florida is kind yeah. of the epicenter, not just of red tide, but of harmful algae. Right. Yeah, that's the good news. <laughs> the yeah. Chamber of Commerce never brags about that for some reason. <laughs> no, they don't. Uh, that doesn't come up. But they're episodic. So even though our red tide is among the most predictable of red tides, other harmful algae are not. And it's hard to get money to study something that you say, well, it may happen this year or it may not. Well, why should we give you money to study it? So that's been a little hard to do. And the other thing is um, with red tide, it, it ecologically, it's so complex that you really need to study multiple blooms over time. A large NOAA project grant right now to look at factors uh, expanding bloom, like in 18, why was 18 a bad year compared to the previous year? Uh, and what ends a bloom, but it's a five-year grant. So theoretically, we can study five different blooms and look at all the different factors co-occurring on these blooms. So it varies from year to year with these blooms. There's no, because we had a bad bloom in 18 doesn't mean we're having a bad one in 19. But the trick is, what are the factors underlying these differences? So, and for that, you need a long-range monitoring and long-range funding for the research. And that's really hard. And I guess the other thing is, if you've dealt with Florida red tides, and I know Craig has dealt with them for many, many years, when there's a bad bloom, all attention is focused on that bloom. But as soon as that bloom goes away, people really aren't interested. Hmm. So it's just hard to maintain the interest uh, between the blooms. And that really makes getting research accomplished uh, challenging at times. So there's a variety of factors that have- So I would imagine 18 was good for, for funding. The 18 red tide was bad for the beaches, but good for, for scientific funding. Well, it did focus attention on these huge blooms and what are the underlying causes and is there a climate change link? And, <laughs> and we did get funding in, in 2019. So <laughs> not directly argue with that. Well, yeah. Let's let's talk about the climate change link because I'm fascinated by, by that. Is climate change making them more intense or? Well, that's the question with our Florida red tide. For freshwater harmful algae, Yes. Uh, for example, microcystis in Lake Okeechobee. For freshwater cyanobacterial harmful algae blooms, there's very clear evidence that climate changes are making them worse. They're more intense. Uh, they're more frequent. They've expanded in uh, the systems that they're in. Uh, for example, like microcystis is, you know, in Lake Okeechobee is, is worse than ever uh, over the last it's, it's years. What people colloquial call the blue-green algae. Blue-green algae, yes. Technically, it's not an algae. <laughs> no, no, it's not. But everybody calls it. It's it's easier. Cyanobacteria. It's actually a bacteria, believe it or not. But 
when it's that green scum that you can actually see, it's hard to call it a bacteria. Yeah. One lady called, told me it, it smelled like death on a cracker, which I've never, oh. never forgotten. <laughs> oh, now I won't forget that either. <laughs> no, pond scum is basically yeah. that. Well, yeah. just, just to pick up there to help, help people and help myself out. Okay. What's the difference between red tide and blue-green algae? Uh, well, they're actually different classes of organisms. Uh, red tide is a dinoflagellate. It's uh, a eukaryote, which is a complex cell with organelles. Um, cyanobacteria are actually technically bacteria. They don't have those complex organelles. They also physiologically can do different things, uh, fix nitrogen gas. They are technically a type of, of bacteria, and that has uh, implications for physiology. So there are different groups of organisms that function differently. But the interesting thing is they both form harmful algal blooms. They can bloom in excess, and when they do, they cause problems, environmental, human health, and economics. So they yeah. have in common, but there are a lot of differences. The lady, the lady I mentioned, she was she was living in Stewart uh, during the big nasty blue green algae bloom there that actually closed their beach over the Fourth of July. And she said, "I've seen them close the beach for sharks. I've never seen them close it for an algae bloom before." <laughs> yeah, that that's rare, especially in Florida. Our beach yeah. is paramount here. Yeah, and that, that is one of the concerns with, with harmful algae. They do, especially red tide, they do impact the beaches. Anyway, you were saying about climate change. Climate change is making the blue-green algae worse because that's a yeah, fresh water. There is a question about the marine species and their impacts. Um, possibly they're expanding the range, especially for tropical species, subtropical, like Karenia brevis, which is our Florida red tide. Uh, the changes in temperature may be having impacts on the physiology Increasing temperature speeds up the physiology. Um, it also can affect toxin content. But a lot of the papers on marine systems were only at the initial stages of, of looking at this. So I would say a lot of it is speculation right now, but uh, uh, how, how far do I want to go? <laughs> there, there, there might be uh, something underlying it. So, And there are, there are a lot of people interested in, in researching that topic right now. Well, how do you mean something underlying? Well, um, we may be seeing an impact. We just don't have the data to definitively say that now. People are starting to suspect that, yes, there are impacts. Climate change is complicated because you're talking about temperature. You're also talking about ocean acidification. As we introduce more CO2, we're changing the pH. So differentiating the effects of increasing CO2 and decreasing pH and compounded on ocean uh, climate change, you have what we call eutrophication, which is nutrient enrichment. So we have all these different factors coming into play with harmful algae and red tides, and it, it can be quite complicated to try to sort them out. So I just want to make sure I'm clear. So acidification may be making red tide worse? Uh, not necessarily our red tide, but other types of harmful algal blooms. Oh, okay. People are studying it right now. Okay. Are all of the red tides in Florida the same? No. we The state monitors over 75 species. Florida red tide is the biggie, Karenia brevis, but believe it or not, there's 15 Karenia species in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, we don't know the role these other Karenia species play. That's one question. There is another type called Pyridinium bahamensi. It doesn't have a cute nickname, but it blooms in the Indian River Lagoon and other spots. Uh, it has a different toxin, saxitoxin, which is fatal to humans. That's monitored and they actually 
closed shellfishing in the Indian River Lagoon for that. And it recently, the, the newest one is a diatom called Pseudonitsia that blooms off California. And you may have heard it affects sea lions and birds off California. That has caused several closures in Florida too. So we have three biggies that get monitored for and closed shell fisheries, but there are other species present and they can cause fish kills and, you know, inver- negative environmental impacts too. I was joking with somebody the other day that red tide Carinia brevis, it's, it's, as far as I know, the only menace named Karen. And maybe if we let it talk to a manager, it'll go away. <laughs> can you tell, you knew, you knew Karen Stadinger, right? Can oh you yeah. She's one of my mentors. Yes. She's wonderful. Um, I don't think a lot of people appreciate she's one of the top scientists, uh, Karen Steininger, in the field of harmful algae. And she worked for the state for all her career. And much of what we know about Karenia brevis, she discovered offshore initiation, the life cycle of the cells. Uh, She did all this research when she was working for the state. But I'm grateful for the fact that she's an incredible mentor. She mentored a lot of graduate students, uh, as well as her own staff at Fish and Wildlife. And uh, I believe it was in 2000, she had renamed, Crania Brevis was originally Gymnodinium Brev in 1947 when it was recognized as the cause of red tide and described taxonomically. Um, she changed it to Tychodiscus Brevis in her dissertation. And then to honor her in 2000, it was um, reclassified as Crania Brevis. So it's now named after her. Yes. How much of an honor is that really, though? It's like, hey, this thing that people hate, we're going to name it after you. <laughs> Your entire career. She definitely <laughs> has a tattoo. I, would, I will give her that. I know a scientist that had an organism, a red tide named after her, and she got the tattoo on her arm. <laughs> Aaron hasn't gotten that far. It was a problem when they reclassified and changed the species. Name. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that, that presented a little problem with the tattoo. So, <laughs> Karen is wonderful. Um, I think the red tide community in the state has been incredibly fortunate to have her in the position she was in for close to 50 years, I believe. And a lot of what we know about red tide, you can trace directly back to her. I think for myself and many people, red tide is confusing because it seems to appear out of nowhere and then just dissipate for for no real reason. What causes it? What ends it? Well, in a minute, under a minute. um, (laughs) Well, what it is, is we can go as long as we want to on this show. (laughs) It's a bloom of a single species in Florida, Karenia brevis, and a bloom is essentially high cell concentrations. Normally in the Gulf of Mexico, you can find a Karenia brevis cell at very, very low concentrations. It's always there, but the concentrations are so low, nobody knows about it. It doesn't have any impacts. Um, there are certain conditions in the late summer, fall that promote it growing offshore. Florida is unique that we have this West Florida shelf that is very shallow and very broad. So you can go literally 100 miles offshore and you're still only three or 400 foot deep. And that's significant because there's not a lot of algae in the water, but the light penetrates to the bottom. So if you're a photosynthetic cell, um, you're happy out there. You've got a huge range. There's not a lot eating you. Um, And when conditions are correct, when we start to get upwelling, when the loop current, which is this current that comes up through the Yucatan Straits and makes a loop and then comes back down to the Keys and joins the Gulf, Gulf Stream, it moves a little east and hits the shelf it causes upwelling and it causes uh, bottom currents that move these cells near shore. 
And we know there are other things that contribute nutrients offshore, uh, another type of cyanobacteria. So essentially, red tide has this whole wide shelf to itself to grow. For many years, it was a mystery because they only saw it when we got, bam, hit with a red tide at the coast. You know, high concentrations, impacts. And that was the first anybody saw of it. So a lot of years were spent kind of spinning the wheel scientifically saying, okay, why did it do this? What caused it to grow, you know, incredibly fast? So what triggered the red tide? Well, in the mid seventies, Karen recognized that it wasn't triggered growth. It was growing slow. It's actually a slug in terms of growth. It doesn't grow very fast, but it has this whole wide shelf. So it starts offshore, slowly moves inshore and grows slowly. So by the time we see it near shore, there's a lot of it. And it looks like it's established and it's killing fish and it's causing respiratory irritation. But it actually, you know, had a month to two months growing on the shelf before that. The problem as an environmental scientist and manager is it's a big shelf out there and it's growing on the bottom. So you can't see it with satellites. The concentrations are very low. So it's really hard to find these initial stages. So a lot of times the only time people see it is when it hits the beach like that. But once it gets established and hits the beach, it seems to exclude other algae. It has something we call allelopathy which is essentially chemical warfare. It puts out compounds that deter other things from growing. The toxins actually start killing fish, other organisms. Uh, it's farming nutrients that way. It's taking advantage of nearshore nutrient sources it didn't have offshore. Um, and it seems to very easily dominate essentially the landscape. So it when it when it gets big and nearshore, it's very, very dominant. This current bloom is kind of interesting because it's it's demonstrated how susceptible it is to the physics of the system. It's been moved around by the currents and the winds a lot more than a normal bloom has. So it can slosh around near shore. It's transported by winds and currents to the panhandle, to the East Coast. Uh, we don't know a lot about the factors that cause it to expand. Like in 18, we just, this year, we've, we've got a fairly substantial bloom off Southwest Florida right now, but it's not like it was in 18 which was everywhere, impacts everywhere. Yeah. And we don't know the underlying factors. We don't know if it's bacterial viruses. We don't know if it's nutrient supply. We don't know if it's physics. That's what we're looking at. And the same thing is what ends a bloom. Does it run out of nutrients? Do the physics, the currents take it offshore? Does it run out of nutrients? Is it, we've got some uh, evidence it may be bacterial or viral that cause the cells to die, or it may be a combination of all of that. So there's kind of a, a life cycle of a bloom on the coast. We know generally we start looking late summer for them. A normal bloom pops up September, October, lasts anywhere from three to five months and then goes away. Uh, the one we have right now, April is the month where the most blooms end. So we're beyond April. So we're kind of watching this one with a little bit of trepidation right now. Once a bloom occurs, is there any treatment for it, something topically you can put on? Is there any way to mitigate it once it starts? Uh, that's a very good question. Right now, there is a state program that is funding an incredible amount of research on mitigation. The Red Florida Red Tide Mitigation and New Technology Initiative. And this is a six-year program that is funding a lot of mitigation research, essentially looking at different technologies and compounds to mitigate red tide specifically. So there's ooh, about 20, 25 projects funded right now. And everything from adding clay to different oxidizers, to different technologies, to, to light, to 
bacteria that are specific to Karenia brevis uh, testing all these things. And it's a six-year program because it's you, you test and confirm in the lab and then you move to mesocosm. You want to be very sure we're not putting something that's har- more harmful than the bloom. Mm-hmm. First rule of mitigation, don't make it worse. <laughs> no dumping bleach in the water. <laughs> uh, believe it or not, we dump bleach in in our cultures to kill them. So <laughs> it's effective, but no, you're not going to dump bleach in the water. Believe it or not, it's a lesson that was learned quite early because um, some of the first mitigation efforts were in Florida in the 50s. And um, they're kind of a lesson in and do no more harm because they essentially dumped tons of copper sulfate bloom off St. Pete Beach. And uh, they sprayed it from crop dusters and they dispersed it from the back of fishing trawlers. And it was actually quite effective in killing cells. But the problem with mitigation is it's easy. As you said with bleach, it's easy to kill the cells, but you release the toxins. So you need something that's going to work on toxins. And all they did in with the copper sulfate was make the bloom more toxic. Oh, man. And, and, and thus killed later, more fish and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And then three weeks later, actually, the tides and the currents brought more bloom back in. So, <laughs> yeah. So that was a lesson. Well, at the time that was, yeah, learned. There's actually uh, efforts at the federal level. NOAA has a, a program that is funding some research in Florida on mitigation of HABs. And but the state program right now is driving a lot. So you'll probably hear next fall a lot more on mitigation and red tides in Florida, but it is a very active subject of research right now. What's the role, if any, of uh, dust from the Sahara? That's kind of complicated. I've I've been looking at that for about 20 years. Um, It's an indirect uh, link. When these blooms start offshore, there's not a lot of nutrients in the water. They're well offshore, so they're out of the nearshore impact they're what, about 40, 40 miles out, something like that? Yeah, uh, anywhere from 15 to 80 miles in, the, in that range. Um, and anywhere from Tarpon Springs down to Naples. So it's an incredibly large area. But um, what the dust does, there's another type of cyanobacteria offshore called trichodesmium. And this is a subtropical open ocean species. I'm going to test you on all these names at the end of the episode, Craig. <laughs> I hope you're taking notes. just call it tricho. <laughs> Or sea sawdust. If you talk to a sailor, they say, oh, yeah, sea sawdust. Sea sawdust. That's cool. Sawdust. It's the most amazing stuff. It looks like sawdust floating on the water because it forms these colonies that are about a centimeter big. You can actually see. And it's a global species. But why it's important, we think, for red tide is it fixes nitrogen gas. So it doesn't get its uh, nitrogen from runoff or from the bottom or from recycling. It actually takes it from nitrogen gas in the air. And to do this, it has a special enzyme called nitrogenase. And where the dust comes in is there's a lot of iron in that dust. And this specific enzyme of trico is about 50% iron. So it's limited. Its growth is limited by iron. So this dust comes over and it dumps a lot of dust into the ocean with dumping a lot of iron. So it essentially stimulates growth of trichodesmium. And over the 60, 70 year record, before we get a bad red tide, we always see trichodesmium offshore. And we think the link is, and we've shown this in experiments, it fixes so much of this nitrogen, it has it in excess. So it just excretes it. It gets rid of what it doesn't need. So it becomes a nutrient source. So it's a biological nutrient source for red tide. So it's putting out a lot of ammonia and dissolved organic nitrogen into the water for red tide. So Red tide essentially has its own little personal nitrogen source offshore. 
but it needs that dust and it needs that iron to, for this other source to bloom. So if we don't get a lot of dust, we don't get a lot of trichodesmium and we don't have a bad red tide year. So fascinating. It feeds the start of the bloom. And it's interesting because uh, we actually found the same thing in Australia. We don't have Karenia there, but they have a lot of trichodesmium on the Great Barrier Reef. I did a postdoc there. So I was looking at it and there's a lot of iron dust that comes off the continent of Australia. So there's huge, huge trichodesmium blooms that are so big. I mean, the, the astronauts would take pictures of it from the shuttle and you could see it. Wow. They're that large. But we'd get dinoflagellate blooms right after these trichodesmium blooms. So that was one of the origins of my research. I was like, well, doesn't this apply to Karenia in the Gulf of Mexico? And it did. Trichodesmium is, is a global algae. If you talk to a sailor, they'll know exactly what you're talking about because yeah. they start offshore every year. How much, how much of a role does, okay, say a red tide bloom has begun, it's moved inshore. What's the role of human-caused pollution then, if any? To well, its continue, there is a role. I mean, it's putting nutrients into the system and it's putting nutrients in that Karenia can take up and use. So it is playing a role in it. We've looked at some of the flux, tried to get estimates of the fluxes. And the question is, how much are they putting in? And the way we've looked at it is, okay, we've estimated what's come in on these different sources, like what's coming down the Clusahatchee, and then looked at, we have this much bloom, how much nitrogen and phosphorus do we need to make that bloom? So it's kind of a mass balance sort of thing. And when we do that, you can look at, okay, well, this, for example, the Clusahatchee River, because that's the one I deal with right now, is putting out this much nitrogen and this much phosphorus in, but it's only 20% of what we calculate the bloom needs. So it tells us, yes, it's contributing to this bloom, but it's not the whole story, essentially. Well, that's an, an important point, because I think a, a lot of, and I'm unclear about this too, I'm not going to pass this off on the audience and say, well, I know, I'll, I don't know either, but it's not man-made, but it may be man-exacerbated by stormwater runoff or, you know, uh, agricultural waste, pesticides and that sort of thing. But it is a naturally uh, occurring process as opposed to blue-green algae, which can directly tie back to uh, man-made inputs. Yeah, you put your finger on it. With cyanobacteria, blue-green algae, um, there's a direct link to eutrophication in these freshwater systems, which is nutrient inputs, basically. More nutrients, with with them, it's mostly phosphorus, more algae, more blooms. And you combine that with climate change, you can see why we're seeing a lot more of these cyanobacterial blooms. It's a lot more complicated with Karenia too, because uh, you're not in a constrained lake or a pond. With Karenia, the physics come into play. Uh, we've identified over 13 different nutrient sources. So people are focused on the nutrient source they can see, but we know there's nutrients coming in from the sediments, from the atmosphere. We know there are recycled nutrients in the system from fish and from everything else. Uh, there's some chemical processes, believe it or not, even photooxidation. The UV light hitting the surface of the ocean produces nutrients. So we've tried to get estimates of all these different sources. The last one we looked at, believe it or not, was cyanobacterial. Coming down, the microcystis is the species, coming down the Clusahatchee with the releases. It hits high salinity and starts to decay and nutrients recycle. So it actually is a nutrient source for red tide too. Oh, so, so, this, so the blue-green algae can fuel the red tide? Uh, yeah, it, once it decays and recycles nutrients, mm -hmm. it's another source for the red tide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the, the nutrient, the reason I ask is that I know the nutrient pollution is the reason why a number of Florida counties 
have banned the sale of fertilizer in the in the rainy summer months is trying to cut well, back. Yeah, that's I I wholly support that as a BMP and as a practice to to help water quality. Mm. Uh, there's no downside to doing that. I don't think mm. you're improving water quality in our systems, regardless of red tide or not. Whether it'll have a direct effect effect on red tide is a little more complicated because it's so subject to the physics of the system. And our current bloom, yeah, it moved up the coast several months ago just because we had anomalous wind pattern blowing from the south to the north. It was sustained for a couple of weeks, and that was enough to move the whole bloom north. That's where marine red tides are different from the freshwater cyanohabs. Because in a freshwater system, you're you're constrained to that pond or that lake. In the marine system, no, we've got the whole of the eastern Gulf of Mexico to work with. To help people out again that uh, are not regular listeners to Welcome to Florida. We've talked about a number of uh, these systems and processes before on the episode with uh, the aquifer and on our Everglades episodes and episodes on the Gulf. But phosphorus comes from fertilizer. That fertilizer runs off into Lake Okeechobee when the uh, water releases through the Caloosahatchee and the St. Lucie. That's uh, what Cindy is talking about as well. So that's how all of this fertilizer, agricultural runoff, Lake O, the Everglades, big sugar, water releases, blue-green, it all connects together here when you you trace it back. Yeah, and I should point out too that Central Florida has been mined for phosphorus since the late 1800s. So it's a region that's naturally rich in phosphorus. That may be one of the things that contribute to us, this Southwest region, why red tide is always happening here. You know, in like 57 out of the last 62 years, uh, the area from Naples to up to Tarpon has got a red tide. So there's something in the water that is natural here. With the physics we know, probably the chemicals, the nutrients. You've got phosphorus-rich central region with this mining. You've got agricultural inputs to the south. Believe it or not, the Everglades is a source of organic nitrogen to the coastal waters too. So you've got this chemically complex environment that red tide just loves. Hmm. We and we haven't even brought up Piney Point yet. Oh, Piney Point! <laughs> <laughs> are we are we starting to see uh, algae blooms from the Piney Point pollution? I know uh, they're. I uh, yeah. I believe it or not, I was at with Fish and Wildlife from 2003 to 10, and I ran the state red tide program, and I was involved with one of the prior spills at Piney Point. We monitored that uh, for red tide because we were worried about it, and did a whole bunch of experiments and. Um, with that prior spill, that was the one that they barged offshore to. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They had a special EPA exception to barge the effluent offshore, but they released a lot into Bishop's Harbor. And we monitored that. And it was interesting because um, Karenia didn't seem to like the effluent. It grew on it in the lab just fine. But in right there in Bishop's Harbor, as soon as it got near it, it didn't grow very well. But there were other types of harmful algae that bloomed right at the outfall. This current Piney Point um, effluent disaster, uh, USF is doing a lot of monitoring. Um, I collaborate with Bob Weisberg at USF on my grants. So he's done a lot of modeling as to where the effluent has gone. And with these anomalous winds pat- patterns have worked to kind of keep it in that southern part of the bay for the most part. Um, I believe initially there was a diatom bloom, which you would expect there was a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus coming in. Diatoms grow much faster than tide does. We found other types of algae there. More recently, the red tide has actually come into the bay and 
what I suspect some of those nutrients are being recycled from the diatom bloom. And that's what red tide is taking advantage mm. of, but it is in that area right now. So there is a question. Um, I don't know for sure. I don't have the data to say that definitively, but it's a little suspicious. The, the Bradenton Herald is reporting <coughs> that they've discovered lingbia in the area as well. Yeah. Lingbia is, is another type of cyanobacteria. Uh, it is a marine species. It can be toxic. It is, very unpleasant because it lives attached to sea seagrasses, but when it's very active, it produces a lot of oxygen when it's photosynthesizing and it rips itself off and forms these surface mats and starts decaying of this goop. It's just, it's hideous stuff. And uh, it's blooming right now in Northern Sarasota Bay at the mouth of the Manatee in Southern Tampa Bay. It fixes nitrogen gas like trichodesmium does. So it's not dependent on the nitrogen but it does need phosphorus. It's possible there's a link to, to Piney Point with that. That being said, though, we, we normally get lingbia this time of year in coastal waters, too. Goop oh. is a scientific term I can get behind. <laughs> that one I'm familiar I with. can spell that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you've ever been close to lingbia, uh, where it's at the surface and it collects around docks and uh, inlets, and it just reeks of rotting sulfur. And it's driving over the Ringling Bridge here in Sarasota. Take a sniff. I can tell if there's lingbia in the vicinity. It's, just, there, it's obnoxious. It, it must be a different species of it because it's this is freshwater. But I've, I've seen what people have identified as lingbia in the Silver River and Silver Springs. Yeah, there are freshwater equivalent. They're, they're actually renaming, re-examining the genera. But there were freshwater lingbia that, that grow in the springs, too. Yes. And the, the one mat was thick enough that an alligator was sitting on top of it. In the oh, river. yeah, it is. When you see it, it's it smothers uh, in Australia. I know it smothers the shrimp fisheries, seagrass beds. It can be devastating. Cindy Heil, director of the Red Tide Institute at Moat Marine. She is a senior research scientist there. This has been an incredibly enlightening conversation. I have mm -hmm. learned a a tremendous amount, a lot of new words to run to the dictionary to uh, look up. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank, thank you, you for hosting me. This has been great. We really appreciate yeah. it. And I hope people will learn a lot from it. Well, yeah. one thing I tell people about Red Tide is the state has an incredible monitoring program. So if you are, want to go to the beach, check out the Beach Conditions Reporting website or check out the Fish and Wildlife Mo Red Tide Monitoring website. It'll tell you where the red tide is, and it'll tell you the conditions at your beach. So if you want to avoid red tide, there are ways to do it now. And, and if you have respiratory problems already, you should probably get as far away from it as possible. Right? Yeah, you should you should avoid it. Yes, definitely. Uh, the evidence says if if you're, you're healthy, uh, you walk away from it 15 minutes, you'll be fine. But people with respiratory issues, if you're pregnant or immunocompromised, yes, you should stay away from it. Cindy Heil, Moat Marine, thank you very much. Thanks oh, again. Thank you very much. Well, Craig, that's a lot to uh, comprehend all at once. We hear these terms, uh, you particularly as an environmental reporter, cyanobacteria, red oh, yeah. tide, blue-green algae, discharge, nitrous, phosphorus. You know, you hear these terms all the time. And it's, you know, if you're just a regular old person driving to work, it, it's hard to keep all that straight and try and understand because they, it does have such a, a tremendous impact and influence yes. on this state, the health of the water, the health of the people, the health of the animals, the health of the tourism, but health of the economy. Yeah. Yeah. Cindy really uh, helped me a great deal untangle some of these terms and what makes them different in my mind. Yeah. And I mean, and 
I covered the the bloom she kept referring to the the 2018 bloom that mm-hmm. went on for gosh I guess 17 18 months and it, it, at one point was touching what I like to think of as all three of Florida's coasts because it, yeah. it of course was on the southwest Florida coast but also the Panhandle and the Atlantic coast we're seeing signs of it mm-hmm. and um, it just it blew my because I was having to write stories just about every day about it and it blew my mind how interconnected everything was yeah. you know the the hair of dust. Uh, coming over from Africa and settling in the Gulf and stimulating the growth of this other algae bloom mm-hmm. and helped create the red tide. I mean, just, just the, the, and lots of people had theories about what to do about it, you know, including, I think, I think somebody actually did suggest throwing copper sulfate at it, which thank mm-hmm. God we don't do that yeah. anymore. <laughs> well, I think it, it, hopefully if there's anything, you know, extended listening of our podcast does aside from encouraging people to visit our great sponsors, uh, it, it's to see yes. this state as an interconnected system, the Gulf side, the Atlantic side, Lake Okeechobee, yeah. the Everglades, the aquifer, what we do inland with trees and development and runoff and mining and ranching. Sure. It all works together to create either a web of life or a web of death. And, you know, that, that teeter-totter is wobbling over towards web of death uh, with in, increasing frequency. And, you know, the, the 2018, that was a national news story. That was oh, not yeah. like a Florida thing. I mean, that was on all the major networks, all the big newspapers. It was a huge national story. And goodness gracious, hopefully uh, we aren't headed for something like that again, because yeah. like you say, whether or not you care at all about snapper and red drum and turtles uh it has a direct tie to an economy that has had some uh, trouble lately due to other reasons well and the the one sort of the upside of the of the summer of slime of 2018 is i think it taught a lot of people in florida that the the economy and the environment are intertwined here Mm -hmm. and if you screw up the environment you're going to screw up the economy and i think people are kind of waking up to that which is you know, let's hope it it influences them in making some of the some of the decisions that they make when they go into the voting booth. 